Thank you, Nick. Um, as I was watching the children up here, I was remembering, I think it was in 1979, Betsy and I were in Indiana. I was in further graduate school, and, and um, we were in a large church, and the children did a musical. I wonder if you remember this. The, it was a good group, a good-sized group, about three- and four-year-olds, about 40 kids. And they were all lined up on this side of the pulpit. Only there were 39 of them. Our son was nowhere to be seen. And we were, I was looking for him, and, and all of a sudden, out of this side of the pulpit came... And to this day, I do not understand how the other 39 got it so wrong that they were... How, how could that have happened? Um, and, and, and by the way, before we begin, I, I, again, deep appreciation to Tracy and, and Ruby and all the helpers who are working with the children for this morning. They do a, an amazing job, not just in enabling the children to perform, but working towards that goal of of internalizing truth and internalizing scripture because that's what it's really about so we love it when uh, when that happens and when we see the children uh, involved in those processes uh, also I wanted to mention something else you all know of our uh, involvement over the last 36 years with officers Christian fellowship I'm gonna embarrass a couple of friends but uh, Colonel Eric and Sally Robine are here with us for the weekend and uh, Eric and Sally are dear friends through the OCF and, you know, we've been going to White Sulphur Springs to teach all these years. Their son, who's also Colonel Robine, is the director of White Sulphur Springs. So that's just a lot of fun. Um, let's uh, uh, take your Bibles and have you turn to the book of Hebrews. We are doing kind of an unusual approach this year to Christmas. Sort of Christmas in Hebrews, actually, is, is, is what it is in a way. We're looking at Jesus in this book, and today we're going to be looking at chapter 1 and some themes from chapters 1 and 2, and uh, I'm going to begin with kind of a, a heavy, extended introduction. This is uh, a bit more complex because if, it, it, my plan is to circle back around to the Christmas story. If you look at Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, those verses are actually in Greek, one long sentence, not divided. It's just too complex to put it into English smoothly. But if you remove all the prepositional phrases and remove all the clauses uh, because we can't translate it and you reduce it all to subject and verb, here's what you're left with. Are you ready? God has spoken. God has spoken. And if you were to summarize all those phrases and clauses, here's what you're left with. God has spoken in his Son. And then there is this odd topic introduced in verse 4, which tells, it's also a part of the same sentence. This says, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Why insert that? What's that about? 
Well, the book of Hebrews was addressing Jewish Christians who were facing persecution, and if they wanted to avoid persecution, all they had to do was renounce Christ and return to Judaism, or so they thought. Judaism was a, a, a legal religion in the Roman Empire. Christianity had become an illegal religion at that time, and it didn't work out that way historically because Judaism also became a problem for the Roman Empire. Also, there were some within the Jewish community who had high reverence, almost even worship, of angels as something to turn toward as they turned away from Jesus. Now, this is heavy stuff, but Paul refers to this in Galatians 1. He also refers to it in Colossians 2. Listen, let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement here and the worship of angels taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind. So instead of doing all that, whatever was involved in that, Hebrews 1.6 says, again, when he, uh, when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. So the Father brings the Son into the world, and the angels are not objects of worship, they worship the Son. In verses 7 and 8, of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. So here God commands angels as servants, but God the Father calls the Son God. In verses 13 and 14, but to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? You so angels are ministering spirits who continue to serve God's plan of salvation in an ongoing way. But Jesus completed his saving work. It is finished and has resumed his rightful place in heaven, the angels are not competing with Jesus. They're confessing and worshiping Jesus and proclaiming Jesus. There's just nothing in this world or in the next that can compare to knowing Jesus. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, I'll just summarize here, the angels were messengers who gave revelation about the coming Son. And because we are his image bearers, it's not angels, but Humans who are the ones who receive that revelation about salvation. Look at chapter 2, verse 16. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. And he's writing to Jewish Christians who have been uh, saved, and he's warning them not to turn back into Judaism. In fact, in verse 17, it's not angels, but humans for whom Jesus died. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the world. There's a lot of heavy stuff in here. The Hebrew Christians were looking over their shoulders at persecution. It wasn't intense yet. Chapter 12, verse 4 says, You have not resisted to the point of shedding blood. And by the way, the implied reminder is, have you forgotten who did shed his blood for you? 
Hebrews is all about looking unto Jesus. And among other reasons, because that's exactly what the angels do. The book of Hebrews was inspired by the Holy Spirit and written to show Jesus as the fulfillment of all of Judaism, as well as the infinite superiority of Jesus over all possible claimants, all possible rivals. But on a deeper level, I believe that Hebrews exposes our human default setting that wants to reduce the holy to something less demanding. And I think we, we just see this in the culture all the time. Something more pleasant. To reduce the sovereign father God to a less than sovereign celestial grandpa. Something more manageable. We are wired to pursue that which is transcendental, that which is beyond ourselves. But we don't want demands made on us. So, Today, we make Christmas about Santa Claus and shopping and gifts and even wonderful things, but we make it about anything less than incarnation, sacrifice, redemption. It's okay to make angels into chubby little manservants, not the servants of God. Wouldn't it be nice if our faith didn't cost us quite so much? Can you order $9 worth of God on Amazon? There's something in our fallen natures that wants us to, to avoid at all cost facing the truth that love so amazing, so divine, demands my heart, my soul, my all. I, I want to tie these thoughts from Hebrews back into the Christmas story. <clears throat> um, so... I have a question for you. How many of you have put up a Christmas tree? Okay. The very top ornament, the top ornament on, on your Christmas tree is probably one of two things. You have two major choices. What did you put on the top of your tree? A star. Anybody have anything else? An angel. Those are the two choices that just about everybody, I mean, there, there it is. There's a star right there. So you've got the star, you've got the angel. And if you were to do a gender reveal party on the angel, what gender would it most likely be if you were to buy that in a store? Female, exactly. Be a girl. And is the angel pretty or pretty frightening? Pretty, okay. In today's culture, angels are usually pictured as females, as children, as precious moments figurines, and they're so cute that you feel you need to protect them rather than be protected by them. A few years ago, Time Magazine uh, ran a cover story on angels, and this was at the height of, of some of the trends towards the movement we now call spirituality, which is transcendence without content. And they wrote this in that spirituality article about angels. Quote, for those who choke too easily on God and his rules... Angels are the handy compromise, all fluff and meringue, kind, non-judgmental. Angels are non-threatening, wise, and loving beings who help us whether we ask for it or not, unquote. In Scripture, the typical response to seeing an angel was not to reach out and tickle its adorable little gins, but to fall on your face. 
What are the most common two words that angels say to men when they first appear before them? Fear not. Not there, there. Fear not. Exactly. The angels of Hebrews, the angels in Hebrews 1 and 2 would just be appalled and are appalled at how they are misrepresented. It's been, it's been quite a few years since I did a study with you on angels. We talked about this. It's been many years. Uh, but maybe the best way to think about angels is to compare and contrast them for just a few moments with us because that will highlight what we see in the Christmas story, which will then make more sense of what we see in Hebrews 1 and 2. First of all, in, in contradiction to the obituaries and the Chattanooga newspaper, angels are not the spirits of dead humans, like Clarence in It's a Wonderful Life, trying to earn his wings. Angels and humans are entirely different orders of being in Scripture. Now, th like us, they are created. They're not eternally existent. They're not God. There was a time when they did not exist. God created them. They, don't, they do not have the attributes of God. They're not omniscient. They're not omnipotent. They're not omnipresent. In fact, believe it or not, according to Scripture, it seems that we are more godlike than they are. I know we're used to thinking in terms of superpowers, but according to the Bible, we are in God's image, and they are not image. Remember, Paul says, do you not know that you will judge the angels? Which implies some sort of a superior status, whatever that may mean, we'll find out when we're with him. So, Angels are not the spirits of dead humans. Secondly, humans are both male and female. Angels, whenever they are presented to us, are always presented as males. So maybe telling your wife, sweetheart, you look like an angel, is not a good thing. There's a good reason why Jesus said they don't marry. Third, angels don't have families. We are conceived from parents who are ours. Now think about that. We're born into their homes, we grow, and we live through a process of years to become who we are right now. Angels may, may look at us and wonder what that's like to have childhood memories and to have offspring like us in our image to love and to raise. They have no family tree. They're not one in Michael as we are one in Adam. They are an association, not a race. If for Christmas you receive a book entitled All the Humans Who Have Ever Existed, you would need an annual supplement. But if you receive a book entitled All the Angels Who Have Ever Existed, it would be a coffee table book as old as the earth. Their total number is fixed. How many are there? I don't know. The closest information we have is from Revelation 5.12, where John says, I looked and I heard the voices of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. 
amazing passage great passage but what john does there is he takes the largest indefinite number in the greek language and the word is myriad and then he pluralizes it makes it plural myriads and then he multiplies it by itself myriads of myriads so how many is that i don't know we'll find out one day but all of them are amazed and astonished when we don't understand who the Son is. In other con- there are other contrasts. Uh, I'll mention just one. We are largely unaware of what angels do unless there's an, ten- an intention for God to let us know. But they are apparently very aware of what we do. The Bible implies that we are on display. Just listen to these passages, and I'm going to read them apart from their contexts. 1 Corinthians 4, 9, God has exhibited us as apostles, last of all, as men condemned to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. 1 Corinthians 11, therefore the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. 1 Timothy 5, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias. The word angel is from the Greek word messenger, angelos. That's what it means, messenger. As God's messengers, they populate the the Christmas story. What would it be like for the angels to announce glad tidings of great joy to the world and i'm not talking about what would it be like for mary and joseph the shepherds to receive that but what would it be like for the angels to announce that because they know what we don't they know the son as their creator they know the son in his glory and now they will know the son as an embryo and months later as a baby frail unable to crawl feed himself utterly dependent on sinful human beings subject to disease and then 30 plus years later subject to death it's just unthinkable it's inconceivable to them i would think and i'm speculating here and you might wonder gary why are you going into all this what i'm describing I'm describing what the Bible says about angels because I want you to think for a moment of what this was like in history. I believe that this must have been the most astounding experience. Maybe a conversation could have gone something like this if you'll grant me a little license here. Did you hear? It's time for the Son to enter humanity. The Son will be the one who will fulfill God's promise to Eve, who will fulfill God's promise to Abraham, who will fulfill God's promise to Isaiah, God with us, who will fulfill all the feasts, who will fulfill all the sacrifices, who will fulfill God's promises to all the prophets, who will fulfill God's promises through David and the poets. The Son is taking a human body. What kind of body? I mean, what majestic manifestation physically would be worthy of him? I mean, when 
we show up before humans, they fall down at their feet. What's that? What is the sun going to be like? Well, actually, he's entering earth through the human processes that he created. The process of birth, which also fulfills other prophecies. You mean a baby? The son is going to be born as a baby? Where will he grow up? Jerusalem Palace? Well, not exactly. 1 Peter 1 says this, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the, place, of the grace that would come to you made careful search and inquiry, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you, in, the, in these things which have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And then here's the phrase, things into which angels long to look. Angels are absorbed in the unfolding drama of redemption. That's why I'm, I'm sure there's rejoicing in heaven when God let them make an entrance onto the stage of history to announce the conception and the birth of the Son. Four times, four times, the angels brought the message of the incarnation when God became flesh. First of all, there was the message to Zechariah about the birth of John the Baptist. Then there was the message to Mary about the coming Messiah and about the virgin birth. A third visitation was the message to Joseph in a dream in which he was told that Mary was to bear the Savior and Joseph was to take Mary as his wife. And the fourth message... Turn to Luke chapter 2. The shepherds, that the Savior of the world had been born. Luke chapter 2, verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census should be taken of all the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. And while they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock, by night and here's the fourth appearance of the angels and an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were terribly frightened and the angel said to them do not be afraid for behold I bring you good news euangelion gospel of great joy good news of great joy which will be for all the people for today in the city of David there has been born for you, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger. And then look at verse 12, uh, verse 13. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, 
Let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. We tend to picture this encounter, I think, in terms of Christmas card theology. We picture a group of about uh, a dozen, maybe 20, okay, okay, let's say 50 angels off in the heavens, maybe about a mile off, glowing, and we have this majestic uh, speech that comes down that the uh, shepherds are able to hear. I doubt if it was like that. I mean, in, in the Christmas cards, the angels fill a vector of maybe 15% of the sky. Okay, maybe, maybe we should think of them as being as close as the first angel who was communicating with them, like we would communicate with each other. And then the shepherds looked up and there was no sky visible because their view of the expanse of the sky was blocked everywhere they could look, every possible direction. Angels were praising God because there are myriads of myriads of them. Now, I'm speculating about what that was like, but I believe that that's more reasonable and biblical than what I see on the Christmas cards. I want you to think about that announcement to the shepherd, about, uh, announcement to the shepherds. Glory to God in the highest. That glory would accrue, that should accrue to God everywhere. The earth is the only base of resistance to the manifestation of God's glory. That's why Jesus taught us to pray that thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we are looking forward to the coming of that king, the king of kings. I want you to think about the theology behind the angel's announcement. The angels witnessed the creation of man, image. They witnessed that. And then, shortly after, they witnessed the fall, the sin of Adam and Eve, where the relationship between God and man was fragmented, image, destroyed. We were still in his image, but everything was different after that. And it removed the peace that existed, uh, the peace of fellowship and communion between God and man. And the angels were then to block the entrance into the garden. So these words, when the angel said, and on earth, peace. That phrase meant a lot, I believe, to the angels. In its highest form, peace is the removal of the barrier of sin through the finished work of the Son. Colossians 1 Verses 19 and 20 says, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace, having made peace through the blood of His cross, things in earth and things in heaven. Romans 5.1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The Son was born as one of image, one of us, and grew and began to serve humanity 
He challenged the religious leaders more and more explicitly about his identity at the Messiah as the time came towards, his, uh, towards going to the cross. He served the poor, he served the weak, he served the widows, the abused, the unloved, the lonely, the grieving. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He repeatedly invited people, come to me, to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you Shabbat, rest, Sabbath. During those years of ministry, this is what he promises for you as well. During those years, what role did the angels play with the son? We've already said that the angels were present at his conception. The angels were there nine months later at his birth. Were there other times that the angels served the Son on earth? Yes, at the temptation, at the beginning of his ministry. Matthew tells us the devil left him and the angels came and ministered to him. Then later in the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus prayed, let this cup pass from me. There the angels strengthened him. At the resurrection, it was the angels who were there. Why do you seek the living among the dead? At the ascension, the angels were there asking the disciples, why are you still standing here? <laughs> He's coming back. So I love that list. It's a complete list, right? Everything, every major event in the life, event in the, life of the Son is listed. Oh, okay, well, there is one that's missing. The angels were not at the crucifixion. The angels must have wondered at God. I, I mean, Peter says they wonder about these things. They knew that humans were created for relationships because the Father had said, even in a sinless condition, it's not good for man to be alone. We're not meant for aloneness. But on the cross... The God-man, the one who was born to die, was absolutely alone. Hey, Gabriel, it's time to go for the next event in the life of the Son. I don't know if that's what crossed anyone's mind, but if they were waiting for orders from God, they just continued to wait and wait and wait while the father was silent peter impulsively drew his sword to defend jesus jesus refused to be defended and listen to what jesus himself said do you think that i cannot appeal to my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels Did the angels think, surely now, at the cross? No. There would be no angels, no Holy Spirit. There'd be no Father. And the cry would go forth, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because the Son, who knew no sin, was made sin for us. So to worship angels, The angels can't fathom that thought. 
the angels know what salvation costs the son in fact what happens when a human being is saved jesus said i tell you there is joy in the presence of the angels of god when one sinner repents but the reason to receive jesus as our savior is not to make the angels happy that's a byproduct the reason is to glorify God by coming to Jesus as my Savior, to be forgiven, to be released from my bondage, to have an eternal home with the Son, the one who loves you so much he'd rather die than live without you. After all, that's why he came. So I'm going to conclude with this thought. Sixty years after Christmas, after the first Christmas, 60 years later, 30 years of Jesus' life, and about another 30 years later, when the book of Hebrews was written, Hebrews makes this argument. Jesus has a better name than angels. Hebrews 1. Jesus brings a better hope than is found in the law of Moses. Hebrews 2. Hebrews 7. Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant based on better promises. Hebrews 8. Jesus sacrifices a better sacrifice. Hebrews 9. Better than the Old Testament sacrifices. Because of Jesus, even if we die by persecution, we have a better resurrection, Hebrews 11. Jesus' mediation of the new covenant is through his blood, which is better than the blood of Abel, Hebrews 12. The argument is just cumulative through this book. And the point is not that there is good, and then by comparison, Jesus is better, like vanilla ice cream is good, but vanilla ice cream with hot fudge is better. That's not the idea. The point is, there is no comparison. Everything, everything about revelation through angels, about the law, everything about the Old Testament priesthood, all of that is anticipation. Everything about Jesus is fulfillment. And you can't go back because that revelation, that law, that priesthood, all of that loses its significance because there's nothing to go back to. It's been fulfilled. In every way, Jesus is better. Angels are amazed at the one point in Jesus' life, the life of the Son, where they were unwelcome, when the Son sacrificed himself on the cross. And they don't get it when we don't get it. They know who he is. How could we not accept him? Have you accepted him? They know what he's like. How could we not live for him daily? Do you live for him daily? When you're going through hard times, persecution, sickness, depression, is anything that you could possibly turn to in order, as Hebrews 4 says, to find mercy and grace to help in time of need is anything better than Jesus. Don't yield to the temptation of being satisfied with something less. Replay the scene. The shepherds are out in the fields protecting their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them. The glory of the Lord shone around them. They were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today, in the city of David, there's been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. 
you'll find the baby wrapped in claws lying in a manger. And suddenly, there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Lord, I thank you for this meditation. I thank you for the ministry and the mission of angels. But most of all, Lord, I thank you for the Son. He is our anchor. He is our Savior. And he is the one whose incarnation we celebrate. Lord, I pray that if there is anyone here who does not know him, that they would consider the claims of Jesus on their life and that they would respond in faith and receive him as their Savior. I pray this in his name. Amen.